This series gives you a direct line to the pinnacle traders. We're covering everything from when the odds are initially posted to looking at how the market might react. This is the opening line. We're back for our week four preview. Apologies for missing last week. Our, our roster was a little bit light due to illness, but I'm back to full health now. And back again is Adam Chernoff. How are you, Adam? I'm great. Sports betting conference season. You got to take the hand sanitizer and be careful with it. That's it. Back to full health, ready to go. But before we get into the action, I want to know what's going on with the barbecue this weekend. The barbecue was fantastic. It was quite the lengthy process. Probably finished a little bit earlier than I should have, but it was a solid 16 hours. I'll give it an 8 out of 10 on the brisket. Nice. Now now time for some NFL, I think. So we'll, we'll jump straight in with the LA Chargers at the Miami Dolphins. Um, we're only four weeks in, but we've seen a theme emerging already with people buying into Miami, although they're, they tend to be on a, a really big handicap. We've seen more of the same here. The Chargers dropped from minus 16.5 to minus 15. One point's obviously come off the over-under at 43.5. We know Miami are bad, but are they plus 15 at home at the Chargers bad? I I think so, but the issue becomes really with the LA Chargers is the pace that they play at. Last year, they were one of the slowest teams we've seen in the NFL for quite some time. This year, they've improved just a little bit. But when you're looking at laying this big of a number, we're talking about 15 and a half, 16 points, uh, you're going to need a very efficient game from the L.A. Chargers to get outside of this number and keep it away from Miami potentially having any opportunity on the back door. And you look at the Miami Dolphins, they're starting to sort of see some money come in on them. I think we've reached the point where these numbers are maxed out a little bit, but we're talking about a team that's allowed passes to grade 59% successful against them, 17 explosive plays, and they're also very porous on the ground, giving up 48%. That's probably only going to get worse now that they've shipped out Minka Fitzpatrick. We saw them uh, not really show any sign of improvement whatsoever on the road at Dallas, potentially getting a bit of an easier opponent here after facing Patriots and the Cowboys in back-to-back weeks, but uh, we're looking at the Chargers They can score in these chunk plays. They've got the offensive talent to do so, but it's just a matter of can they be efficient enough to get outside of this enormous point spread. And now we've got the Oakland Raiders at the Indianapolis Colts. Indianapolis, they were favoured by seven points on the opening numbers, and that hasn't really changed. The over-under was initially listed at 44.5. It's crept up a point, potentially on the way back down now. Now the, the Colts, they seem to be dealing with the absence of Andrew Luck. It looks like they're going to get the win against the Oakland team because, I mean, they've been pretty poor this season. I guess the question is, do you think they'll get the win by seven points or is that a bit of a stretch? Well, it's pretty easy to fade Oakland, especially on the road. This is game number two of a six-week long, one of the worst road stretches we've seen. We've heard John Gruden now for the second time in about six or seven weeks be very vocal about how he hates flying, he hates traveling. Um, So that's starting to create like a little bit of a weird sort of perception around the Raiders on the road. You look at what they've done on defense, and it's extremely concerning, even when you're getting seven points in your pocket to start a game. 21 explosive plays against. That's the most in the NFL. Two more than the next worst team at 31st in the league. So that's an enormous number for them to overcome. Uh, Colts, not like they're the most explosive offense, but they've shown that they can be extremely efficient with Jacoby Brissett underneath center. The big thing here 
is the injury report for the Indianapolis Colts. Pierre Desir, T.Y. Hilton, Malik Hooker, Ryan Kelly, and Darius Leonard did not practice on Wednesday and limited at best on Thursday. So you're looking at five key parts of both the offense and the defense potentially on the shelf for this game. That makes this number seem a lot larger than it is, especially with T.Y. Hilton. He's had sort of a notorious stretch where he won't practice Wednesday, Thursday. He'll do limited work on Friday, and then he'll come out on Sunday and have an enormous game. So it's a bit difficult to read between the lines, but should he not go, we saw what this offense looks like without him last week against the Atlanta Falcons, where they were really only able to put together one drive in the second half. Sure enough, it was enough to get the victory, but obviously very limited with him when you're looking to cover this big of a number. Passing success rate for the Indianapolis Colts, 55%. That's the second highest rate in the league. So down to down, they're extremely good. Should have plenty of success moving the ball against the Raiders, but those injuries to the defense as well as T.Y. may be very costly when you're looking at laying this big of a number. And now we've got the Carolina Panthers at the Houston Texans. Houston opened up as favourites for this at minus five. They've dropped a point to minus four and the over-under has jumped up from 46 to 47.5. Now, previous episodes you spoke a lot about concerns over Cam Newton. Obviously now this this other injury, is the news is broken and we've got Kyle Allen in. He, he did okay against the Cardinals last week. Do you think the market is right in the in the Newton drop-off, or do you think the Texans are worth the four-point favoritism? Well, I would say okay is maybe a bit of an understatement for what he did against the Cardinals. 261, four touchdowns, a 144 rating, and a 73% completion percentage. Um, I think what he does is just allow this offense to play with the speed and the width that Cam Newton was not allowing them to do. Um, as you mentioned, we got into Cam Newton throwing the highest rate of uncatchable passes for the, through the first two well, game and a half that he was healthy for. Um, he ended up playing the full two games, but that second half in week two was pretty abysmal with what he was able to do against the Bucks. So now that this offense just has someone that can get the ball in the hands of these playmakers, uh, it resembles a very dangerous offense that a lot of people were very high on coming into the season. Um, the market quickly shifted after the first two weeks. So there was certainly opportunity last week with the Carolina Panthers. I specifically like the over in that one, but it's difficult not to look to them again this week. If you're able to catch a four and a half on the board, that's not going to be available for much longer after you're hearing this podcast. By the time you listen to it, it's probably going to see four or lower, probably still a little bit of value there. I think the Houston Texans are probably one of the most overpriced teams in the AFC. Um, you look at where they're getting beat specifically, and that's in the passing game, uh, deeper in the secondary too. Uh, but also defending those short passes has been an issue for the Houston Texans defense. They play very soft. You look at Moore and Samuel for the Panthers, two of the quickest wide receivers in the NFL. McCaffrey provides that balance that they need. And then Olsen has emerged again as sort of um, one of the better tight ends in the league. So if Allen can get the ball moving around like he did against the Cardinals and just put it in the hands of some of these guys, they're certainly going to have plenty of room to run on the Houston Texans. And then it all comes down for the Panthers defensive front getting pressure on Deshaun Watson last week. Uh, He was pressured for the lowest rate in his career at just 18%. uh, But I think that's more indicative of the opponent they face. Panthers have shown that their pass rush a little bit more live than we've probably given them credit for 
Um, so I think it's a pretty favorable spot here for Carolina, who's getting really overlooked. A nice sell-high position here on the Houston Texans. Look for the Panthers at four and a half or four. Now we've got the Cleveland Browns at the Baltimore Ravens. And Cleveland, I mean, they've been pretty disappointing this season. There was a lot of big talk before the season. Um, they got a win on the board, and but now they're looking at another difficult game against the Ravens coming up. So the market is on Baltimore moving them from minus six to minus seven. And the under over under is hovering around forty six forty five. So, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, this is really interesting because I don't think that people necessarily look at the Baltimore Ravens defense and rank them or price them where they should be. What we're looking at is really an average secondary through the first three weeks of the season, and where the Baltimore Ravens struggle the most is preventing uh, uh, explosive plays. They're six; they've allowed sixteen through the first three weeks. That's an enormous number, but. Um, when they get spread out specifically, you're looking at three or four wide receiver sets. That's where they have the most trouble defending. And whether it's the absence of Jimmy Smith or some other injury concerns in the secondary or just schematically what this defense sort of sets up against. Um, first three weeks of the season, teams have found success when they spread the formation and when they push the ball downfield. Cleveland has been relentless at running out of 11 personnel, three wide receiver sets. Um, they've been relentless at throwing the ball downfield as well in the first three weeks. It has not led to success because Freddie Kitchens has been stubborn enough not to change the game plan to tailor it to face the opponent that's in front of them that week. If he follows through with the same mindset again this week and is stubborn enough not to change his game plan, even though it's probably the, not the most optimal game planning that he can put together, he may inadvertently back into a successful game against his Baltimore Ravens defense just because he's been doing the same thing for three weeks that works against Baltimore. If he happens to change and go back to more two tight end or two running back looks, he's probably not going to have as much success as he would if he just stays the course for this game. Overall, we're looking at a pretty large number here for Baltimore to be laying at home. I still don't think there's necessarily enough value in Cleveland to go ahead and back this number. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how Kitchens manages his play calling and if he sort of accidentally lucks into the ideal situation to face the Baltimore Ravens. So in our next game, the Kansas City Chiefs are traveling to the Detroit Lions and the Chiefs are six and a half points, minus six and a half on the handicap. It's, it's been pretty solid all week and the over-under, it's gone up a touch to 54 and a half. The Chiefs have looked good this season, and even with all that kind of preseason expectation that was going on. But I think in their opponents, the Lions, they've done all right. I think they're maybe being underestimated a little bit. I'd be interested to know, do you think there's any value here, or has the market got it right? I'm waiting for a spot to really fade the Detroit Lions. Unfortunately, I don't think it's this spot with the Chiefs laying six and a half or seven points. We're probably going to see us get the seven by kickoff. Uh, but Detroit 2-0-1 on the season. They were quite fortunate to get out with that draw against Arizona, despite how they blew the lead late in the fourth quarter. Um, numbers did not look well for them in that game. But then you look at week two and week three specifically against the Chargers and then against the Eagles. They were outgained by a wide margin in both of those games. One yard per play against the Chargers, 0.6 yards per play against the Eagles. And they got out of both of those games with victories. So now they're sitting as an undefeated team through three weeks. But you look at their numbers across the board, um, nothing really stands out as is even average. You're looking at a team that ranks average to below average in almost every single category. Defensively, the one spot where they stand out 
Um, they're holding passers or opposing quarterbacks to a 40% success rate. But you look who they who they faced and how much of this 40% is really noise. They got Kyler Murray in his first ever career start with Cliff Kingsbury in his first ever head coaching debut. Phillip Rivers on the road. The Chargers had a ton of injuries that game, and they still managed to outgain expectation. And then Carson Wentz on the road last week with probably more injuries to a single team's playmakers than we've seen in the last couple of seasons. So even though this this defensive secondary is doing is slightly above average, uh, you have to wonder when they face a team at full strength uh, in, in a neutral game state situation how they're going to look. So I certainly think Kansas City, the most dynamic passing attack in the NFL, there's no question about that. They're going to have success. I just don't love laying this much of a number. And quite frankly, I'd be quite pleased that the Lions can keep this competitive uh, and close and then set up something in the next two to three weeks where we can really take advantage with a more favorable number uh, than laying a touchdown on the road with the Chiefs. Total on this one, awfully high. Probably going to continue to get higher and push towards 56 as we get to kick off. So do you think with the Lions, we're seeing a classic case of needing to look beyond kind of results, beyond the box score and really dig into the numbers then? Yeah, and it's it's a combination of digging into the numbers, but then also realizing uh, how much of those numbers are noise. Like I said, if you look at their numbers just overall, uh, you might be able to find some, you might be able to paint them in a pretty positive light, um, getting wins against teams like the Eagles and the Chargers, which will grade out quite high. Uh, but if you look at those specific situations for both of those teams in those games, as well as how they performed against the Cardinals in that spot, who probably grade out a little bit higher than they actually should, um, you're looking at a pretty average performance against three teams that might make their sort of case look a lot better. Uh, but probably some of the worst performances we'll see from those three teams that the Lions have faced all season. Right, now we've got the New England Patriots at the Buffalo Bills and New England are the favourites at minus 7.5. We said on the earlier podcast that that we thought money was going to come in on the Bills and it did, um, but it's now pushed back out to where it started. The over-under is currently sitting on 42.5. Now, we know the Patriots are good. Don't think many would argue that they're the best team in the NFL at the moment. So the question is, I guess, how do the Bills go about beating them? So it's the same thing kind of like we just talked about with the Lions, where it's it's a really interesting handicap, and it's all about how you interpret the data and sort of filter out the noise. So if we look at the Patriots specifically, they rank number one in both success rate against the pass and rush. So number one, overwhelming across the board for success rate on defense. However... They face teams that rank 29, 32, and 31 in offensive efficiency. So that's by far, and it's not even close, the easiest schedule of opponents through the first three weeks of the season. So is that really a true number one? Or are we talking about a defense that should probably be priced as the top four, top five type of unit? Right? You've got to sort of filter that out. And then we can also look at the other side of the ball. The Patriots rank 17th. And third in rushing and passing offense. So, again, we're looking at pretty good numbers overall, but you have to factor in the schedule. They face the third easiest schedule of opposing defenses. And the one number that really skews that is the Pittsburgh Steelers, um, who we know in that first game went into one of the most difficult spots to play and obviously put together an extremely poor performance. The big question for me at the Patriots is their offensive line. We're looking at a left tackle, center, and right tackle that was not with the team that won the Super Bowl back in February. 
Uh, they've suffered a couple injuries already this season. But this offensive line has not been tested. And despite gaining the 17th highest success rate on rushing the football, which is obviously below average, um, they've done so against pass rushes and run defenses that really haven't tested this offensive line. So you're looking at that number 17 uh, for the ranking of the rushing offense behind this offensive line with questions. Now they face a Buffalo Bills defense that's going to be their toughest test of the season. How does that offensive line hold up and how efficient can the Patriots be moving the football? The biggest strength for the Buffalo Bills defense is in the secondary. So that's going to make throwing the football a little bit more difficult. And when it comes to relying on the rush, if we've seen a below average run offense so far through the Patriots against three very weak run defenses, how does that look when you go on the road and face the Buffalo Bills? Um, definitely looking Bills or nothing in this game, not something that I've put into my account just yet. As you mentioned, a pretty interesting line movement. But, but really, when you're handicapping this, it's, it's all about the number. And if you're looking at a seven-point spread with Buffalo at home, let's say you're giving them three points for home field, which I don't think is unfair. That's really citing the Patriots as a 10-point favorite on a neutral field. That equates to about a 32% difference in implied probability on the money line. If you look at what 32 wins equates to just over the course of a season that's about five wins for a team difference so when you're handicapping this looking at this number from just the pricing standpoint kind of have to ask yourself are the patriots five wins better than the 3-0 buffalo bills uh, you really can make a case um, pretty strongly against that uh, so it really goes to show that this number is probably a little bit inflated and why the traders mentioned that they were expecting some buffalo money to come in earlier in the week well two games there i think guess outside of the nfl outside of football any kind of sport you're looking at and you're talking about looking at data and it's the important context there i think is really obvious in these two games would you agree absolutely right so we've got the washington redskins at the new york giants and this one's seen a relatively big jump on the over 46 and a half up to 49 people it seems are still taking the over and the handicap is solid minus two and a half in the favor of the giants now this is it's another game where there's a lot to think about with I mean, I was going to say backup quarterback, but it's probably now a starting quarterback. So I'd be interested to know what you make of Daniel Jones and whether you think he's good enough to help the Giants get the win over the Redskins. So probably my favorite look of the week is on the Washington Redskins plus three. And it's not really on or against Daniel Jones. I certainly think he gives the New York Giants a better opportunity to win throughout the season than Eli Manning. Um, and you could also see in the first two weeks where... The play calls that New York was running weren't necessarily tailor-made for Eli Manning, and you could just feel that they were sort of, it was almost like a, a bit of a dress rehearsal to bring Daniel Jones in. I think it makes sense that they did so against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a defense that wasn't going to give him a lot of trouble, especially in the secondary. But now we're looking at this game, and it's interesting from the market perspective, right? Because the look-ahead number on this game was the New York Giants minus two and a half, and that was 115. Um, you look at the Daniel Jones sort of hype and narrative that's now sort of manifested itself from the result against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. If we go back just five months to the NFL draft, I mean, he, the New York Giants organization was absolutely crucified for drafting Jan Daniel Jones in the spot that they did. And then he, he comes through in the preseason and now one game against the Buccaneers. That's 103 offensive plays. We've seen Daniel Jones in the New York Giants uniform. Uh, a third of those were 
in the preseason. And all of a the sudden, there's now talk about the Giants returning to the playoffs and potentially having hope. So it gets really interesting to see just how quickly the narrative and the overall perception of this team changes. What gets really interesting, though, is we go back to that look-ahead line between what the look-ahead line was both in the summer and then last week at Las Vegas casinos, which came out after the news that Daniel Jones was going to start. And then the opener, which came out after the performance against the Buccaneers, all of those numbers were the exact same. So despite all this narrative and hype around Daniel Jones and the offense, the price has stayed at the exact same price point. And while there would probably normally be a sort of appetite to adjust the New York Giants up, there's obviously underlying problems here. Saquon Barkley goes out, so that's a hit against Daniel Jones in the offense. A couple wide receivers either still suspended on the injury report, so this is going to be a difficult game where there's not the running offense, but there's a lack of playmakers around Daniel Jones that we didn't necessarily see with him against the Buccaneers. But the big underlying issue here with the New York Giants is their secondary. And we can look at this from a couple different ways. If you want to look at it from a qualitative perspective, the pro football focus grades are probably the best option for that. Through three weeks, the New York Giants are grading out at a 32.0. And just to put that in context for people who don't follow the grades, if you look back at the last 10 years within the grading database, that's the third lowest grade of any NFL team in the decade. So that just gives you an initial idea of how bad the secondary is. But if we go a bit deeper, yards per pass against, the New York Giants have allowed a yards per, ten, a, a yards per attempt against of 10.1. And if you want to put a comparable to that, we're talking about one, 0.1 yards better than the Miami Dolphins and a full yard worse than the Oakland Raiders. So now you're looking at comparables. Do you put the New York Giants worse than the Raiders and just slightly better than the Miami Dolphins in any sort of conversation. We're talking about a team that might go to the Super Bowl versus two teams that one of them's not expected to win a game, but that's where the Giants are rated. And then if you want to look down to down to negate some noise, the Giants have allowed teams to pass for a 53% success rate against, which is 28th in the NFL. So all of this is pretty one-sided. It now becomes a question of, like, is this actionable? How much noise is within this number? The Giants have played the Cowboys, Bills, and Buccaneers. Those teams rank second, 21st, and 26th in passing efficiency, 12th, 16th, and 2nd in yards per pass attempt, and 1st, 14th, and 25th in passing success rate. So if we look at this from an efficiency perspective, the Giants secondaries put up these poor numbers against the 7th easiest schedule of passing offenses. And now you add in the fact that linebackers Alec Ogletree and Tay Davis are potentially both unavailable for this game. There's been some midweek moves to sign former players off the practice squad to fill in for linebacker. This defense has the potential to get absolutely eaten up by the Washington Redskins who throw the football at the third highest rate. And we're probably all thinking back to what we saw on Monday night football, what we saw last with this Redskins offense struggling to move the ball against the best defense in the NFL, the Chicago Bears. That all changes this week. I think it sets up really well for a Redskins cover. And now we've got the Tennessee Titans at the Atlanta Falcons, and this is one that the market can't seem to make its mind up on. The The Falcons, they're floating between minus five and minus four, while the over-under is still on the 46 that it opened at. So 
It seems that the market isn't going too big either way. Is that the same with you, or is there something that people aren't seeing? Yeah, it, this is a miserable, miserable game. There's really, I think the numbers are, are terrible. You can't make a case for either side. It's an ugly one. I would like to make a case for Atlanta, as I think the Tennessee Titans are a clear sell for the sort of foreseeable future. But you look at Atlanta, Tack and Jarrett, their two best pass rushers, potentially out for this game. They lost Keanu Neal, so they're going to be down to safety number three of the season, and we're only going into week number four. They haven't really done anything midweek to sign anyone to fill that gap, so we're probably looking at a player or a practice squad upgrade to go in at safety. Um, it's ugly. I'm not touching Tennessee. It's just not a team I'm interested in backing. I don't trust the quarterback. I don't trust the offensive coordinator, Arthur Smith. I don't trust the head coach, Mike Vrabel. Um, they're a stay away from me, uh, just an average team that's getting overpriced. But to lay this number with Atlanta, given their defensive injuries, it's just not a spot I'm interested in. So we'll move on to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the LA Rams. And this one, I guess on the face of it, is looking good for the Rams. They've got a 3-0 record, uh, especially when you consider all their main challenges in the NFC seem to have some kind of issues going on. Uh, this should be a fairly routine win against the Buccaneers, but minus 10 might seem a bit too big for some people. But then I guess... There's probably others that are thinking that's a good play. So what are you thinking for the Rams and your your good friend Jared Goff? Yeah, uh, I think we'll probably see good Goff in this game. The sort of criteria for handicapping Jared Goff is, is he at home? And will the opponent be able to generate pressure? And the answer for both of those this week is, yes, he's at home. And no, the offense or no, the opposing defense is not likely to generate too much pressure. There's... A little bit of concerns with his accuracy downfield this year, but um, at home he averages nearly 10 yards per pass attempt. On the road in two games this season, he's averaged less than five and a half. So it's a pretty significant difference. And those home road splits go back to the start of his career and the start of his time working with Sean McVay. Uh, it, it's just for whatever reason, when he's at home, he's comfortable. He sees the field much better. Uh, and this offense as a whole just performs much better as well. And usually I'm not someone who looks at anything that comes from previous seasons, but with this just such a strong divide throughout his entire career. And it's amazing how from week to week it swings so drastically for him. But I think that's just the product of what happens when you have a quarterback that's so dependent on his head coach. Uh, when you're on the road from a coaching perspective, there's a lot more to take into account. At home, you get it's just a more comfortable situation overall. So that's what we're seeing. But uh, I certainly think he has success here against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and their secondary, which I think is coming in. Uh, it's a little bit overrated. Um, while it reads sort of average within the league, uh, you look at the opponents that they've faced. Tampa Bay's faced the worst version of Jimmy G that we'll see for the entire season in the week one game. Um, he also got San Francisco on the road in the Tampa Bay Heat. Next week, he faced, um, or the secondary rather, faced Cam Newton before that adjustment to Allen. And you saw Cam Newton again through the highest rate of uncatchable passes in his first two starts. So you get Cam Newton right before that injury was finally announced. Um, it, it, they're just benefiting from facing quarterbacks in difficult situations for them. Uh, also get Daniel Jones in his first ever career start a week ago. Now you have to go across the country to Los Angeles to face this Rams offense. I think we're probably going to see this Buccaneers defense regress to the level that they probably should be graded at. Um, from the Tampa or the LA Rams perspective, this defense lowest amount of explosive plays against. But again, it's just a matter of who they've 
faced. And I think they've also lucked out with a couple of favorable matchups against opposing quarterbacks. I think this defense is grading out a little bit higher than it should. The one sort of downside to looking at points in this game is the Rams defensive line. If they can get to Jameis Winston, you're looking at a quarterback who has the eighth highest passing rating on throws 10 yards or more downfield, but the worst passer rating on throws nine yards or closer to the line of scrimmage. So if they're able to generate pressure, they can blow this game up in a hurry if they're forcing Winston to get the ball out of his hand quickly. If Jameis has any sort of time, I think he can move the ball as well. So I certainly understand why this total has come down from 15.5 to 49.5. That defensive line will draw plenty of attention. Uh, But I think this game sets up decently well um, for some scoring opportunities. Side's probably going to be pretty split in terms of action as we head into Sunday kickoff. So on to the Seattle Seahawks at the Arizona Cardinals. And we said at the start of the week that it looked like the money would come in on the Seahawks. And it indeed has pushed them from minus five to minus four. It's the same with the over-under. It's gone from 47 to 48. So do you agree with the market here? Or are we going to see Kyler Murray silence some of those early doubters? I think Kyler Murray has success naturally against the Seattle Seahawks defense, which um, has ranked right around average but i'm not sure that's a true representation if you look at the more qualitative eye test sort of metrics you're looking at a team that grades in the bottom eight for secondary and coverage also an extremely poor tackling team so you're looking at the arizona cardinals who can spread you out with four wide receivers uh, get the balls into hand guys with a ton of speed uh, but then also utilize david johnson a little bit we'll probably see him with a few more touches than he has in the first three weeks of the season um I'm not too concerned about the Arizona offense where I am concerned that Arizona defense going against this passing attack. If Seattle can ever just put together a passing first game plan rather than relying on Chris Carson and their stable of running backs, I mean, they're going to have plenty of success. And I think they just naturally go to that with the Arizona Cardinals. Arizona did a very good job of disguising their injuries in the secondary week one and week two. Even though they let a lot of Lions receivers run wide open in that opener, uh, they did well to keep that game competitive. And then Baltimore, uh, which is an interesting team as itself, but they went into Baltimore and for the most part held that Ravens passing attack in check for the full 60 minutes. We really saw their lack of a number one and number two corner, Alfred injured, Peterson suspended. But we really saw that exposed a week ago against Carolina where they had to defend width and speed on the field. So now you get Seattle coming in that runs very similar packages from a formation perspective to what Carolina did, has a lot of speed and width as well, but then a lot of size uh, that we're starting to see emerge with DK Metcalf. So if Seattle can focus on the passing game here, they're going to have plenty of success against the defense of Arizona that's already given up 16 explosive plays and a 55% passing success rate against. So uh, plenty of opportunity for both of these teams to move the football. Uh, I think you should look for points in this one from the point spread perspective. Uh, I think five is probably still a touch low. We might see this trend up towards six before kickoff. So the next game, we've got the Minnesota Vikings at the Chicago Bears. And the Bears were listed at minus three, but it's now minus two and a half. And unsurprisingly, it's a, it's a low over under at 38. Um, the Vikings had a couple of big wins either side of a loss against Green Bay, but they have been against pretty poor teams. So he struggled against the Packers defense and the Bears probably even better on that side of the ball. So what do you make of this matchup? I have absolutely no idea how either side is going to end up moving the football. <laughs> you look at the Minnesota Vikings, uh, they're going to be protecting Kirk Cousins as much as they have. If they protect the Kirk Cousins against the Atlanta Falcons, they're certainly going to go out of their way to protect them against the Chicago Bears defense, which we saw absolutely 
uh, almost forced Case Keenum off <laughs> on a stretcher a couple of times. Um, they were in the backfield consistently and just embarrassing the Washington Redskins offensive line. Uh, now we're seeing the Vikings offensive line come in not a whole lot better, but Kirk Cousins under pressure. We all know how that story ends up playing out. But uh, you look at the Chicago Bears defense, 23% of run plays against them are grading successful. That's number one in the league, but that's an extremely high number, um, high as in high ranking number. Uh, I don't know how Minnesota with this outside zone scheme, which relies so much on timing and blocking and allows opposing teams with speed to get into the backfield are able to find success running the football. But you flip that around. I think the Vikings defense as a whole, especially against the run, probably one of the more underrated units in the league. We talked a lot in the last couple of weeks about the number of returning starters and the continuity within this system that certainly translated out. Uh, especially against the run. It's going to really force Trubisky to throw. That's where they might be able to find just a little bit of success. Uh, but that hasn't proven to be successful at all for the Bears through the first couple of weeks with Trubisky grading out as one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL. So this one's shaping up to be an absolute mess of a game. So straight on to the next one, we've got Jacksonville Jaguars at Denver Broncos. And there seems to be quite a lot of things feeding into this one. I mean, the, the Broncos haven't been great. Their defenses or or can be, I should say, pretty good, but it's on offense that they've really struggled. And the market here thinks they're worth minus three, and the total has pushed up from 37.5 to 39. Now, there are question marks over Jacksonville. It seems people still torn on Gardner Minshew. I know you weren't big on him when he came in, and you've also talked about that Denver home field advantage getting blown out of proportion. So how do you approach this one from a betting perspective? Yeah, this is like the past comment game that we can probably cite a lot of things from the last couple of weeks come together. And still, that does me absolutely no good at looking at potential value in a side or a total. I was a little bit surprised to see this number bet up. I don't know if that's a bit of Minshew hype coming together, but the Denver Broncos have certainly shown no sign that they're going to have success moving the football against really any opponent in the NFL. Uh, this offense, extremely concerning through the first couple of weeks of the season. If they've had any success, surprisingly, it's been in the passing game, 46% success rate against a 35% success rate on the ground. But I think a lot of that probably indicative of the opponents that they've faced. You look at the Jacksonville Jaguars, although they performed quite well on Thursday night football, I think this is a unit that as a whole has taken a bit of a step back. You get Jalen Ramsey potentially missing this game. A, a bit of weird reports coming out. He had a back injury, then he was sick. Now he's having a child. And Doug Marone sort of came out with a weird statement and was like, he'll be back when he's back. And that's all amid all of this trade talk and rumors that he wants out of this team. So if he's not there, that probably gives these Denver Broncos receivers a bit of relief in terms of finding space downfield. Um, but overall, it just comes down to protection from the Denver Broncos. If they can keep Flacco in the pocket upright, then potentially they have a chance to move the ball downfield. But it's an awfully concerning matchup. Uh, from the Jags' perspective, uh, I'm not big on Minshew yet. Everything's close to the line of scrimmage. Got a little bit more freedom to throw against the Tennessee Titans, but um, you just look at how conservative everything has been with him. I wouldn't let a couple big throws against the Titans really change this. Now he faces the most difficult defense he's seen in the NFL. Has to do so on the road at altitude. We know how that's inflated for the home field advantage in September. I think that's probably now... As we mentioned a couple weeks ago, a little, I think they hosted the Bears off the top of my head in that game that came down to the last play. But I think that was the episode where we mentioned how, I mean, something that popular that's been going on for that long and is that widely talked about. 
I mean, that's going to be priced into the market. And we're probably seeing that here with a price that's never really dipped below three uh, minus 115 cents opening at 3105 and getting money immediately bet on that. So we're seeing a shaded three here, I think, for good reason. But it's just more so of a response to that home field narrative than it is probably indicative of this matchup. Um, surprised to see the total come up, but another game where it's just uh, reasonable to stay away. So now we've got the Dallas Cowboys at the New Orleans Saints. And another interesting one, this is one where the movement was fairly obvious from the get-go. We called Dallas moving 3-3. They're currently sitting on minus 2.5, and, and the over-under has gone up to 47 from 45.5. Now, you said on an earlier episode that the Cowboys are arguably the most overrated team in the NFL. They're obviously coming up against a Saints team without Drew Brees, so I guess it a lot here depends on Bridgewater. What kind of value are you putting on the backup quarterback? Or to put it another way, do you think the market is adjusted enough on Dallas? I think the initial buy point made sense at three and a half, as we talked about on the Monday podcast, sort of anticipated this coming through. But now we're looking at something less than a field goal, and that drastically changes the handicap. Uh, if you're getting three and a half with, with New Orleans at home, um, you can probably paint this game in a very different way than you can if you're looking at just a two and a half point spread, which uh, for the most part, you're looking at a team winning the game outright at that perspective with the reduced or sort of insignificance of uh, numbers one and two in the NFL. But we look at Dallas, 52 percent overall success rate on offensive plays, 60 percent passing success rate and 45 percent rushing success rate with 16 explosive plays through the first three weeks. So playing extremely well. I think they're playing quite above expectation. We'll probably see this come down just a little bit. Still think that it, when I say they're overpriced and overrated, it's just in relation to what the market's willing to pay for them. But I think that now in this specific game with this at two and a half, um, there's a lot more interest in sort of buying into that New Orleans home field narrative in the Superdome primetime football that's really fueling uh, a little bit of the handicap right now, which I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, with Drew Brees on their center, this offense looks extremely different. And I was expecting the Saints to go into Seattle and get extremely creative with their play calling. I'm a big Sean Payton guy. I love how he can drastically change from week to week. But we saw an offensive game plan that was less than inspiring, to put it politely. Um, the scoreboard for that game is going to read very much in favor of the New Orleans Saints. But if you dig into the box score, you look at a game where the Saints were outgained by 250 yards and over 1.5 yards per play. So from just a, a game state situation or looking at non-defensive touchdowns or special teams, you strip those away, the Saints were absolutely dominated by the Seahawks. But I don't think that that necessarily translates over into this market. And I think that seeing the Saints win with Bridgewater on the road in Seattle, a difficult spot to play, probably has done a good job of fueling this move as well. And now you combine that with the home field narrative. And we're setting up a spot where it's really the situation and the narrative versus the numbers and the on-field analysis. And all the numbers and the on-field analysis point to a Cowboys victory here and a pretty significant Cowboys victory. But if you're buying into the situation and the narrative, um, you're probably looking at the New Orleans Saints. And where this gets a little bit interesting um, from a betting perspective is you think back to a week ago, Rams, Browns, the, the LA Rams received a ton of action in the afternoon and evening last Sunday, and that price got driven up to five. Uh, it was an absolute, it was a huge decision for bookmakers. And that one went the way of the Rams 
pretty comfortably. So I think that naturally puts up a stop sign in another spot where the Cowboys are going to be the team that are receiving the larger majority of wagers. Uh, but you look at the movement going against them, I think people are going to naturally take a worse price with the Saints than they could have got earlier in the week and just take a bad number here. Certainly think that there's, if anything, some value now at two and a half or less on the Dallas Cowboys because it's difficult to make a case um, for the Saints anywhere on field or through the numbers. So the last game of week four is the Cincinnati Bengals at the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Steelers have gone from minus four and a half to minus three and a half while the over-under has been pretty stable but it looks like it could be on the move soon. So we've got two teams here from the 0-3 club. Um, Pittsburgh obviously have to work with what they've got this season with Rudolph instead of Roethlisberger. The odds suggest they're going to get the win, but the market doesn't seem too confident in them. So what's your thoughts? This is probably another case where, based on the performance last week, we're seeing the market sort of adjust and and correct that initial price point. Pittsburgh at four and a half, that's a big number to be laying at home in the division, given their quarterback situation. That game last week against San Francisco read 24-20, but you dig a little bit deeper Pittsburgh Steelers, they scored on a 76- and 39-yard pass, which were parts of two- and three-play drives. Their next most efficient play was a 31-yard pass interference. Their nine of their other 10 drives went for 14 yards or less. So in terms of Mason Rudolph, his only two passes in front of the line of scrimmage happened to go for touchdowns. Everything else extremely conservative behind the line of scrimmage. And now I think... Not only did they have a quarterback issue, but they have a bit of a play-calling and scheming issue as well. Cincinnati Bengals front seven, one of the more underrated and underpriced units in the NFL. So if they're able to shut down the rush, as we've seen them do against other opponents already, 42% success rate against, it's really going to force Pittsburgh to try find space downfield through the passing game, rely on some explosive plays again. Um, it it be- becomes a pretty easy game plan for Cincinnati to put together. And probably the biggest concern overall on this field is the Pittsburgh secondary. They add in Minka Fitzpatrick, uh, but we're still waiting for his impact to be shown. 52% success rate against in three weeks for the Pittsburgh Steelers' secondary defending passes. 17 explosive pass plays against Zach Taylor comes in, throwing the football at the highest rate in a neutral game state, which refers to any game that's within one score. Bengals are throw, throw, throw. Dalton under pressure has been an issue. So if the Cincinnati Bengals offensive line can just give him a little bit of time, he's going to certainly be efficient in moving the football against the Steelers secondary, uh, which whose perception in the market a little bit higher than it should be. Um, so this gets very interesting. Not sure there's too much value now at three and a half. Uh, but if you're listening to the show and you have four and a half with the Bengals in your account, uh, you're sitting on an awfully good ticket. Well, there we go. Another week down. Just 13 left to go. Uh, thanks again, Adam. I'm sure I speak for all the listeners when I say I'm grateful for the time and effort you put into to sharing those words of wisdom. So thanks again. A couple bumps along the way, but I think that was a pretty good show. We're back in the groove with two a week. There we go. Thanks to everyone for listening. You've got plenty of time to get those bets down before you can sit back and relax and enjoy the week four action. Visit pinnacle.com to get all the latest odds. And as always, please gamble responsibly. 